This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This week, we'll talk through some of the news Highlight the stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend, and uh, this time it's going to be Congressman Michael Waltz from Florida. I think you're really going to enjoy this. He's an American hero, served his country, and now serving in the United States Congress. He's uh, a fascinating, fascinating figure in today's American politics, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. But first, let's start on the news. Let me riff on the news a little bit, and I got a couple things I want to talk about. First, Ah, the Wuhan. Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it, the China virus. I know it's called coronavirus, but where did it originate? Where did it start? That's often the way we name things in this in this country. Uh, did it start in the lab? Did it start in a wet market? You know, early on in the process, you actually had President Donald Trump, who, in response to a question, suggested that, yeah, it might have started in the lab. Now, I know there were a lot of a uh, lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats, and a lot of people in the media that said, "Oh, that was fake news. It's false information. There's no information. He's just guessing." But standing behind the president is an intelligence organization that usually has a lot of information that the president can't just highlight and say, "Hey, well, this is exactly where I got it." But why? Why at that time? Why did they just get rid of that notion that perhaps it was started in a lab? And I'm glad to see that they're taking a little bit more seriously now, that we're starting to look at this. I mean, it was one of the worst pandemics, certainly in my lifetime. And we got to make sure that it never, ever starts again. So why the hesitancy in trying to figure it out? World Health Organization, they have so many ties into China. So I don't fundamentally trust them, nor do I trust personally Dr. Fauci. I think he's changed and flipped and flopped. And this weak excuse that you're getting for the Centers for Disease Control suggesting that, well, you know, we didn't do anything directly, but yeah, maybe we gave out some grant money and maybe those people, their grant money, I mean, aren't they supposed to be keeping track of this? If they're trying to keep track of germs and diseases and infections, they can't keep track of where they put their money and how that's being spent. And did any of that money get spent in China on these types of things? I think it's worthy of, of looking at a little deeper. Item number two I want to talk about as we riff on the news here is what's really in these bills. Now, remember, when Donald Trump was president and they had to do some COVID relief, there were four very bipartisan bills that passed. The, these bills were as bipartisan as it gets, and they passed, and it was needed relief. But then when Joe Biden became the president, they decided, the Democrats, that they were going to go it alone. They passed a $1.9 trillion bill. Uh, only Democrats, and we have talked previously about all the waste, the fraud, the abuse that's in these bills, um, things like $600,000 for two gazebos at Guantanamo Bay, $180,000 plus for uh, a seat that can eject out of a training airplane in Africa, 
there is stunning amount of information that wasn't disclosed and wasn't put forward by the president saying, well, you know, it's all for Americans to get back up on their feet. They're the ones that built the country. Undoubtedly, there was a lot of money for that. But there was a lot of money that was used to go overseas. And what's concerning is now the president, in the last week, you heard it last week, you're going to continue to hear it here. They're going to be out there pounding and trying to really sell. Oh, we need more relief. We need more relief. They can't even spend the money that they've already been allocated, that's already been appropriated. And when they do, they did things like, I do some work for the Government Accountability Institute as a distinguished fellow. This is Peter Schweitzer's group. Um, for instance, one of the things they found in the previous COVID relief bill, there was $4.69 million for the Department of Health for the Fruit of the Loom underwear coming out of Honduras. So don't tell me this is all about COVID relief and all oh, we need more money to get people back on their feet when they're able to go out and spend so much money like the $600,000 on the the gazebos at Guantanamo Bay and they can go out and spend you know the money on on airplane fixtures and th those types of things. So when we really want to understand what's in the bill, there was a process that was supposed to be in place to do this, but they bypass it. It's the regular appropriations process where it goes to the 12 appropriations committees. They put forward a bill, then it comes to the floor of the house and each member can offer what's called a striking amendment. They can kill a part of a bill, literally a line item type veto. And they can put that up for a vote. And if it passes, it passes. But at least it's exposed. These types of things are not being done while the one-party rule in this country moves forward with multi-trillion dollar bills that we are going to end up paying for and your kids, grandkids, their grandkids are going to end up paying for. It is a stunning amount of money and people don't know what's in it. And yet the president and the vice president continue to go out and say, we need more, we need more. They can't even spend what they already have. All right. The third thing that I want to mention about in the news and you've seen this. I think America's tired of being told that they're not woke enough, that they have got to change. So everything that they've been doing is just fundamentally wrong, that they're racist, they're xenophobic, they're, they're homophobic, they're everything. You know what? Most good, hardworking, patriotic people just trying to do what they do in their life and enjoy things. They don't need a sports program or an entertainment program or something on the TV that's supposed to be like entertainment to go out and tell them about how wrong they've been leading their life and that they are, they are ethically wrong. And somehow I, I think the Democrats have really, really overplayed their hands. And I, I think America is tired of it. I think it's um, oftentimes a good reminder to step back and understand the sensitivity that people might have to your words and your actions but by and large, I got to tell you, I do not believe that this country is systemically racist. Is there racism in America? Yeah, unfortunately there is. And is there anti-Semitism? Is there, are there all kinds of bad things that I wish weren't there? Yeah, they are. But we're human beings. But I think by and large, the United States of America is the greatest country on the face of the planet. And thank goodness people are trying to sneak into this country they're not trying to escape this country. That's why we have so many people coming. All right, that brings me to bringing on the stupid. Because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. First item up on bringing in the stupid 
is that continued statement that I hear from the administration that the border is closed. Are you kidding me? Ah, uh, just last week on foxnews.com there was another yet another article about how the border patrol agents in the Del Rio sector in Texas have seen a 3166% increase in arrest of convicted sex offenders compared to the same time frame last fiscal year. Now, keep in mind, this is just the Del Rio sector. It's one of the more active sectors. This doesn't count all the other sectors in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. But uh, since October 1st, if you go back and look at it, they have been arresting and detaining people that had convictions that included forcible sexual assault, sexual assault of a child under 14, sexual conduct with a person under 13, statutory rape, second-degree sexual assault of a child, lewd acts with a child. I mean, it just goes on and on. So don't stand up in front of the White House podium and say the border is closed. At the same time, they're seeing record high apprehensions of people that have previously been caught with sex convictions that include those against children it's just fundamentally wrong it qualifies for bringing on the stupid all right number two because i got like i got too many this week because a lot of stupid stuff going on kamala harris the vice president of the united states has still not visited our southern border the president said that she was going to be in charge of border security and everything that was going on with the border and she hasn't visited it's been more than two months she never gets asked a question because she never takes a question. And it, it, this, the numbers are stunning. I just think it's so stupid of them to say she's in charge, but she's not doing anything. Nothing that's visible, nothing that allows the interaction between the Border Patrol agents, the one who are actually doing the job. It just qualifies to me as being rather stupid. All right. Another item for bringing on the stupid Facebook uh, said last week it would no longer ban posts suggesting COVID-19 is a man-made virus amid mounting calls from President Biden and other officials to further investigate. They should have been looking at this from the very get-go, but because Donald Trump said it, of course, hey, we're not going to talk about it. I just think it's so stupid that Facebook and their woke group of you know, arbiters or, or the, the judge and jury there at the, the gods at Facebook decided, hey, you know what? We're not going to allow you to even say on Facebook or even suggest on Facebook that it might be a man-made virus, that it may have escaped out of a lab. Now they're pulling back on it because, yet again, they are proving that, well, maybe that had some validity to it. It was an election issue, coincidentally, harming Republicans who claim that, hey, this is something we should investigate, but yet again. All right. I mentioned this one before, but I got to highlight it again because it's so stupid. The last one for bringing on the stupid, the Government Accountability Institute highlighting the idea that $4.69 million from the Department of Health went to the Union Underwear Company for a mass order of Fruit of the Loom underwear. That sounds like a pretty stupid use of our COVID relief money. And that's bringing on the stupid. All right. Now it's time to talk about stories from the halls of Congress, which has been a fairly popular item that we've been talking about. We've interviewed a few people. I've told some funny stories. 
going to take a little bit different turn on this one because uh, I want to highlight some of the notable politicians who have changed their names. Now, I find it interesting that, you know, in the world of politics, you got to communicate, you got to be able to position yourself. I, I understand, appreciate that. I, I do that. I was in Congress eight and a half years. I was chief of staff to a governor. I, I think I get it. think I understand it. But it is funny to me. It's sort of interesting to me how some people have felt the need to just change their name and their perception um, along the way. So let me highlight some of them. Some of you may know, some of them you may not know. Uh, James Earl Carter. Now that's Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter. That's not a big leap. That's not, I mean, going from James Earl Carter to Jimmy Carter, yeah, that's not too far. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, well, of course, she went by Sandy. Now, I, I don't, I'll let you come up with your analysis of what that means, but yeah, I think it'd just be easier if you call me Sandy. All right. One of the stranger ones to me is Mayor Bill de Blasio. Because he started out as Warren Wilhelm Jr. Then he went to Warren de Blase Wilhelm. And then he went to Bill de Blasio. De Blaze Wilhelm to de Blasio. I, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But anyway, the next one is actually, this one really, a couple of them make me smile. And Ted Cruz, he is Rafael Edward Cruz. We know him as Ted Cruz. But as a child, he was known as Felito. Now, this is the quote that came from his uh, book, a, a Time for Truth. Um, he's known as a child as Felito, but he said, the problem with that name is that it seemed to rhyme with every major corn chip on the market, Fritos, Cheetos, Doritos, and Tostitos. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So Ted Cruz got away from Felito and went with Ted Cruz. It seemed to work for him. He's now the United States Senator from Texas. Leslie Lynch King Jr. Well, that's what Gerald Ford started out as. You know him as the uh, former president, but he had an abusive father, and he changed his name at age 22, um, and he changed it to be named after his stepfather. That seems very, very reasonable and can understand it, but it is interesting that he that Gerald Ford was not his original name. William Jefferson Blythe III, of course, Bill Clinton. But he changed his name at 15 after his father died and his mother remarried. Again, seems very reasonable to me. This one cracks me up. Robert Francis O'Rourke, uh, the former congressman from Texas, a failed presidential candidate. Of course, he conveniently called himself Beto and uh, trying to be a little bit more in tune there. But Robert Francis, that's his real name. Now, I don't know that I can pronounce the next one properly because Nikki Haley, her real name is Nimrata Randhawa Haley. I think that's how you pronounce it. But she just went by Nikki and she says, well, I changed my name because it wouldn't fit on a yard sign. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, the former governor uh, totally understandable. And again, I hope I pronounce this next one. And it's one of my favorite excuses or or descriptions is probably a better way to say it of why he made the transition. I think it was Payush Jindal. And you know him as Bobby Jindal, former governor. But he said he changed his name from Payush to Bobby because he was enamored with the Brady Bunch. And I got to tell you, as a huge Brady Bunch fan... I totally buy that. Bobby Brady is somebody to emulate. 
And I'm glad that Governor Jindal did that. And we know them all as Bobby Jindal. So I just thought that was interesting. But now it's time to phone a friend. And I got to tell you, I, uh, I really have a lot of a lot of admiration for our next uh, guest that we're about to call. It's Congressman Mike Walt. He's the first Green Beret to serve in the in the United States Congress. Um, he's got a good patriotic background. And so let's dial Congressman Michael Waltz. Hey, Mike Waltz here. Hey, it's Jason Chaffetz. Thanks, uh, <laughs> thanks for letting me ping you here. I I do appreciate it. You know, you agreed to do this podcast, and the hour has arrived. All right. Well, let me uh, let me let me take a break from my from my uh, golf game, right? And uh, happy to happy to sit down <laughs> with you, Jason. Uh, truth be told, actually, everybody, actually, just full disclosure here. He he calls and I you know I was gonna maybe record it on a different day and then you know I said I was really busy and then he calls and I'm actually on the golf course so you know I I, I was very busy but I was golfing <laughs> that that is true yeah no the irony is I don't play um, but so let me introduce but I shoot right and I uh, love to go out and shoot so let me let me let me sit down the gun how about that. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, yeah. you were kind enough to do that because I didn't put down my clubs. I kept going. So thank you. <laughs> um, listen, we're thrilled to have Congressman Michael Waltz. Uh, represents Florida's 6th Congressional District. Um, but you also have a fascinating background and because it's a military background because I believe you're a colonel in the Army National Guard, a former White House and Pentagon policy advisor, a Florida native, um, but you're also the first Green Beret who was elected to Congress. So, I, you know, with these podcasts, what I'm trying to do is you, I love chatting with people who achieve so much. So I want to kind of go back to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about growing up, brothers, sisters, what did mom and dad do? Like those formative years, what was going on in your life that kind of led you to the point now? But what were those things that were happening in your life? And and let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, ended up in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I was born in South Florida, but grew up in Northeast Florida uh, in Jacksonville, big Navy town. Uh, uh, my parents moved there. My dad was in the Navy, but I never knew him. Uh, he, he went out to sea and, and I, I guess, you know, never really came back. Uh, so was raised hmm. by an amazing a uh, single mom uh, who herself uh, only had a high school education, uh, but just broke glass ceiling after ceiling, uh, worked three jobs uh, as, a, as a dental hygienist, a night security guard, and an insurance company, um, and just showed me early on the, the, the value of hard work. They, How old was she? she when, how old? Oh, I'm sorry. She was 24. Um, you know, so young. And, um, and I remember her coming to me one day and, you know, we didn't have any grocery money. So she said, and, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, pick out some of the toys you don't like. We went to the flea market and sold, you know, whatever we had to, to be able to go eat. Um, but the, the great thing, and this is what I love about this country is, you know, she set the conditions for me to be able to get scholarships and go to Virginia military Institute. I got a great charter school education. Uh, and, you know, it took me four years of, um, 
uh, to get through college. And she went nights and weekends and off and on for 15 years. We graduated the same time, the same year. Uh, So incredibly. And she ended up retiring as an executive uh, at uh, Prudential Securities and just couldn't be more proud of her. So that's amazing. Uh, let's let's go back because not many people are dental hygienists and then also work in night security, and that's hard <laughs> when you're raising a raising a child. And did you have brothers, sisters along the way, or I had a no, not really. I mean, I had a, a half sister, but was was very distant with her until we were older. Uh, I remember, you know, she used to sleep between six a.m. and ten a.m. Uh, because she was working at nights and then throughout the day. And, you know, I would kind of crash with, uh, with my aunt, you know, her sister, or, mm-hmm. you know, did what you, you just did what you had to do. Uh, and, but, uh, you know, what I really point to is that charter school education. Um, I ended up graduating with 36 college credits from high school. Uh, and importantly, I was in an environment where it was just expected uh, that you were going to go to college. It wasn't if you're going, it was where you were going. Right. And that was just the expectation of the teachers and, and the other kids there. It was a very diverse school, actually on a really rough side of town. Remember Kamala, um, you know, talking about busing. I was a product of busing. We got as part of, uh, you know, a desegregation. Uh, you know, kids were bused to our side of town. We were bused to their side of town. Uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, though, Jason, we, we also found uh, was my faith. Uh, as, as a teenager, my mother became a born again Christian, uh, really led the way for me. And I don't think if it were for that faith uh, and that great education and her great example, I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. You know, it's interesting when you're growing up in a situation, you just think, hey, everybody's like this. Um, it's only, I think, later in life when you kind of reflect back and you realize, wow, I mean, it was different for me than it was for other kids. Um, but when you were growing up, what were, what was the like toughest thing you went through uh, as a young man, maybe even before high school? You know, I think there was just always a real, you know, my mother did the be- absolute best she could. But there was just, uh, there, when you don't have that father figure in your life, there's a real absence in your life. Uh, and, you know, I, I look at now, I look at uh, communities um, you know, for example, in the in the African-American community where they've gone from 80 percent nuclear families in the 60s to only 20 percent today. I think there's mm-hmm. really something I think there's really something to that. Uh, and that absence of a strong father figure, that absence of often the discipline and leadership uh, and, and strong example that can come with that, um, I think is something that's really missing uh, in, in American society today. And, and I, t- I've now am a, um, have been a single father. I was recently engaged, but raised my daughter. She's now 17, um, uh, largely on my own. And, uh, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of making up for, I think that absence that I've been so engaged in my daughter's life and she's doing fantastic, but men need to, men need to step up. I've never understood this kind of, you know, let, let the kids go off with their mom and I'll visit every once in a while. You need to be, you need to be extra present, uh, in children's lives. And, you know, we'll talk about it later, but one of the things that I'm, uh, really focused on in Congress is, is getting us back to national service. That was the other piece. My mother was very active with Habitat for Humanity, 
uh, and other charitable organizations. And that just got me into a mindset of serving your community, your neighbor and your country, serving a cause bigger than yourself. That's amazing, uh, you know, because if she's working multiple jobs and then still has that heart and that presence to say, you know, we also need to give back. And and uh, I guess it could have been a lot easier to say, well, you know, the world owes me, this country owes me. and and But it sounds like it was, you know, it was a very conservative sort of approach of self-reliance and self-determination. Am I reading that right? No, that's absolutely right. It would have been easy to be a victim, right? You know, broken home, dad was, it w- wasn't around, uh, you know, and in in she um, you know, really didn't have an education, uh, but she was determined to, and that's the beauty of America, right, is setting the conditions for the next generation to do better than, uh, than you are uh, and, and, and to have a better path than you had. Uh, and she was certainly able to do that for me. I've been, I think I've been able to do that, uh, for my daughter. And, uh, that's, that's what every parent should strive. I say all the time, you know, I've been a green beret and combat decorated and a Colonel and a CEO and, and served at high levels in the Pentagon, the white house. Now in Congress, my most important title is dad by far. Uh, and, and, uh, that's just, uh, I think how the mindset everyone should have. You're going in grade school and then you were in high school. What was, uh, you probably got a job along the way. So what was your first job? <laughs> uh, McDonald's. Uh, I was, I was too young. I was 14. I was too young at that time. I guess there were some labor laws back in the day <laughs> to work right. the grill. So I only worked the drive through and the front counter, which of course my, uh, teenage friends, uh, you know, tried to torture me incessantly. Uh, but, uh, rode my bike in, I made $3 and two cents an hour, um, yeah. and, uh, right. And handed every paycheck over to mom, uh, to save up for when I was 16 to be able to, you know, and every parent out there knows how their ins- car insurance spikes whenever you add a teenager, particularly a teenage boy, yeah. uh, to your insurance. And, you know, one of my first jobs, I worked as a gardener in Arizona and then I realized, Hey, you know what? I, I this is Arizona in the summer. And I think, you know what? I'm a blue collar. That's a blue collar job. I want a white collar job. So I went to work for the General Cinema Corporation, ripping tickets and popping popcorn. <laughs> then I made a whopping $2.88 an hour. And then when I went uh, later and told Mr. Hobie, who was our manager, hey, Mr. Hobie, I'm not even making minimum wage. And he said, look up there. And he said that the entertainment industry was like exempt from the minimum wage standards. And I, it still bothered me when I was in Congress on the judiciary committee, this thing came up and I started going after the Democrats on this and you exempt out like circus workers, entertainment workers, all the people who actually need a minimum wage in this country. Ah, it's just, I don't like the minimum wage because I, you know what? I think it, it pushes away young people from having a job and good for you and good. I have talked to so many. You're the second person out of like, I've done nine of these podcasts. Lauren Boebert, her first job was at McDonald's. Your first job's at McDonald's and it, it teaches yeah. you something. It, it but you know, the other thing at thought, I remember the, the, the franchise owner, uh, I remember sitting down with him, you know, we would take breaks or what have you. Right. And he's running a multi-million dollar business. Right. I just thought of it as McDonald's. You just got, you know, right. hamburger and fries, but, 
really understanding about franchising and about, you know, entrepreneurship and ownership. And, you know, later I was able to build uh, my own business, but I think some, some definitely some, some seeds were planted there for sure. Uh, moved on to, to stock groceries another summer. Uh, and then eventually I kind of went through a phase where maybe I didn't want to go to, um, thought I maybe didn't want to go to, go to college. And so, um, my mother very smartly, uh, handed me over to my uh, uncle, who was a Harley mechanic, my cousins who were roofers in Florida. Uh, and after I took that beating for a little while, I, I roofing in I'm Florida, like that's a job yeah, right, right there. Uh, yeah. And these, <laughs> these guys were, uh, you know, just, um, tan, wiry, tough. Uh, and they saw some young, smart out, smart Alec kid who had a great future that, you know, was getting a little attitude, man, they beat it out of me really fast. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like <laughs> roofing in, t- in Florida to knock you down a little bit over a summer. That's, that's good. That's, that's really yeah. good. It could build some character. So you're doing that. You're accelerating. I mean, you, you, it sounds like you got a good, um, had a great experience with a good school that had an administration that cared, teachers that cared, and it prepared you and got you ahead for going on to to, to college. Um, yep. When did it first kind of strike you that, you know what, um, I think I want to be in the military? Like, not every kid thinks that. I mean, when I was a little kid, I played with Army men and, you know, I threw dirt clods a lot, but it didn't dawn on me that I necessarily should join the military. So what, what, what was it that kind of sparked that interest in you? You know, I, I grew up and, and where it came from, I'm not sure, but I grew up reading uh, about Patton, George C. Marshall, um, you know, the great leaders uh, of, of, the, of the previous generation. I used to you know, my mother uh, was was into jogging. You know, that really came into style in the '70s and '80s. I used to ride my bike behind her and talk to her about Yamamoto and Nimitz and poor woman. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I could recite it all. There's actually, uh, for those who've been to Florida, the the nation's oldest fort is in St. Augustine. Uh, it's an old Spanish fort from the 1500s. I used to stand on that fort. And uh, and kind of talk through how I would defend it and then go stand out in the plains in front of it and then talk about how I would assault it. And uh, just somewhere in there uh, that that neuron sparked. But I think it was I think it was just reading about the great leaders uh, throughout our military and throughout our history and just what a difference they made, uh, how they really stepped up in the moments of of trial and tribulation and defeated fascism and communism, colonialism. Uh, that just inspired me to go be part of that great tradition. Well, good for you. And you know what? Your mom, I'm quickly learning, is quite the saint because to be on a jog, and albeit your son riding the bike talking about Yamamoto, that that's impressive. That 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 doesn't happen in most families. I don't know if you know that, but that's not a common <laughs> well, thing. <laughs> I have to tell you, you know, as she tells it, she was rolling her eyes and like, you know, how do I have this eight-year-old kid that's reading every you were eight? museum, <laughs> right? you know, like nine, 10, whatever, you know, that's reading every single plaque. Most kids want to go out and, and, you know, play baseball or something. And I was in the museum uh, dragging her along. But, uh, you know, between that, Jason, I just came to realize when I got a little bit older, I was able to start traveling. And, and, you know, I tell everyone this, get out of this country 
spend some time abroad and you'll appreciate how truly exceptional this nation is. Uh, and so I was able to, you know, take some trips in my high school and then early on when I was at Virginia Military Institute. And uh, this, this nation is absolutely worth defending. And, you know, the future for our kids and grandkids to me was worth dying for. I mean, it, it truly is exceptional to have a country that that allowed someone like my mother to break through so many barriers uh, and and to set the stage for all of us, all the entrepreneurs, uh, all of those who have um, who made better lives for their families, regardless of race, religion, social economic background. Uh, it's really special. Yeah, you know, you make a great point because it's true. When I was when I was young, uh, traveled out of the country and could not wait to get back to the United States of America. I, I, I was very blessed, and we traveled around and went to South America, went to um, Africa, went into Europe. But boy, there was nothing like the United States. But the only way I gained an appreciation for it was actually having been there and tried to you know, fit in and, and live there. Again, we were visiting. I wasn't like living, living there. But being there and being part of that culture, even for just a moment, um, it taught me so many things, but probably first and foremost was my appreciation and love of country. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I tell you, know, go spend some time abroad and you will be kissing the ground uh, when, when you land back here. Yeah, A lot of true. places in the world that are a great place to visit. Um, beautiful, amazing history and culture. Uh, but man, there's, there's nothing like the good old US of A. And then that, those are the, the, the nicer places. Unfortunately, I've fought in the not-so-nice places. Uh, in, <laughs> and then you really are uh, counting your blessings when, when you get back. Oh, here, yeah. That's for sure. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Congressman Michael Waltz right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so let's go back. I want, I want to fully understand you're, you're joining the military because you have a fascination about it. You're reading it. You're going to the fort. You're thinking about how to defend it, but also how to attack it, which is not a common thing for a young man to do, uh, maybe a little bit, but not to the degree you were doing. All right, so. A little weird. So you get a decision, like, was there a person? Was What was the moment you said, yes, I want to do this? But why the army? Why ranger school? Why green berets? Like what? 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 Why not the air force? Uh, why not the coast guard? Yeah. I mean, you're in well, Florida, I so I didn't start out there. And it, part of it was, you know, look, part of it was I got a, a full uh, ride from the army. <laughs> That's helpful. Well, that'll um, do it. Yeah. And, yeah, I got a full ROTC. I initially thought that I'd want to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of the initial goal. Uh, my eyes deteriorated. Um, you know, I went out in my kind of later teenage years, this was before the days of, you know, LASIK and, and I corrective eye surgery. So if you didn't have 2020, you weren't going to be a pilot. And then the, um, uh, the Marines came around and offered me, you know, what they call a radar intercept officer, if you know, and, and, and top gun that, you know, that was goose sitting back seat, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or a navigator, uh, position, you're still flying, but you're not the actual pilot. 
And, you know, when you're, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you kind of puffed up chest. I said, you know what, if I can't be the pilot, then I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go down that route. Uh, and I want to lead soldiers on the ground, like the great leaders of us history. Now, fast forward, uh, how many times I was in the neck deep in the bottom of a swamp on a training mission or snuggling, you know, trying to keep, stay warm with my battle buddy on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan. And I see those planes flying back to a warm bed and an air base and a hot meal and going, what the hell? Asking myself what the <laughs> hell I was thinking. <laughs> but, right. um, but that was, you know, that was kind of the decision. Unfortunately, I was um, I worked hard. Uh, at, at VMI was at the, at the top of my class in the first year. Uh, and, uh, I chose to go combat arms. Now what's interesting, and this is one of the ways that green berets are different from say the seals, this was, you know, they, the average age is around 24. Uh, the green berets, the average age is around 34. You have to go kind of season in the army, uh, and go do something else first. So I went into tanks uh, initially, uh, and you have to be, uh, a captain, uh, before you can even try out for the green berets. They tend to be older. We like to say when we're talking to seals, especially a little wiser. Um, but you have to go do something else first. So when I commissioned out of the Virginia military Institute, I went to a tank unit, uh, until I was promoted and, and seasoned enough to try out for special forces. And, and I mean, you made it, but most don't. So what do you, right. what do you attribute the difference to? Like why you well, and why not most? And one of the things that, um, well, I'll tell you the easy answer to that is I have a high pain threshold. Uh, and if you ask my fiance, she'll tell you that I'm really stubborn. <laughs> I was not necessarily the most gifted athlete uh, or necessarily the smartest in the room, but I'll outwork them. And, uh, and I'll, I'll go through the night, through the morning and, uh, just, just, just power through. But, you know, the thing that attracted me to, uh, the green berets, and this is how they're a little different from the Rangers or the seals The Rangers, you know, the army's elite infantry, the seals, uh, the, the, you know, elite, uh, ground unit in the Navy, they're the best at the world, like the Osama bin Laden raid at, uh, mm -hmm. finding, fixing, and putting two bullets in the forehead of, uh, of our nation's enemies. Green Berets, uh, it's, a, it's a different approach. We have to learn multiple languages. We specialize in different parts of the world, uh, learn local cultures, often uh, have to blend in. We're the guys that, that you sit four of us into a village or a tribe or a valley, and we'll train 2,000, 5,000 locals to take care of, you know, the nation's business for us. So I like to say the SEALs are the best in the world at finding our enemies. Green Berets find our friends and they take care of our enemies for us. And I was really, really attracted to kind of, you know, one week we're literally we're building schools and we're holding medical clinics. Uh, and then we gain intelligence and goodwill off of that. And the next week, we're taking out bad guys, but it is really kind of the PhD of, uh, of unconventional warfare. And our founding was from John F. Kennedy, actually, who saw that we had a need to embed uh, local small American teams who spoke the languages, knew the culture with freedom fighters to overthrow communist regimes. And so our motto is de oppressor libera, to free the oppressed. 
Well, when you're all in like that and you, you're just yeah. pouring your heart and soul into you live and you're breathing it, and then there comes a time when you actually leave. Tell me about that transition because not everybody successfully makes that transition. Um, yeah. and, and they get, they have a difficult time when we've, we've taught them to be warriors, you know, and to, and it's a very disciplined life. And yet we go out, you, you managed to make the transition and form a very successful business. So, um, again, what, what do you, what do you attribute the difference to? So I, so I took a, lo- a bit of a unique path. A lot of folks don't realize necessarily uh, that both the SEALs and Green Berets have reserve units. So that's the kind of one week in a month, you know, two weeks a year, although we, uh, we, we did a bit more than that, um, uh, which meant that, you know, you had to be in shape and keep your skills sharp to be ready to go, you know, into combat and do the nation's business. But, but you had to have a day job. Right. And and it just worked out for me that my day job was actually under Secretary Rumsfeld as a civilian uh, mm-hmm. under uh, Defense Secretary Gate and then eventually over in the Bush White House as Vice President Cheney's counterterrorism advisor, uh, setting the policy and advising on the, the policy at the most senior levels for the war on terror. But then, Jason, I had to be one of the, the only knuckleheads in Washington that then would get mobilized and I'd actually have to go do it. <laughs> so you better make sure the strategy's right, because it was kind of my butt on the line. And I did that back and forth uh, uh, three times. Uh, in one of my tours, uh, I was embedded with just two other Americans in an Arab task force. So I was partnered with 90 Arabs, uh, soldiers, uh, special operators. Yeah, and then we were uh, as a as a unit then partnered with another 180 Afghans. So if I never eat goat again, because I felt like that's all I ate for a year, um, there were only three of us: uh, myself, a medic, and a communications specialist. And uh, we were we were yeah, I was close to Salbi to to Lawrence of Arabia. And in another tour, I had to lead the search for Bo Bergdahl. If you remember that traitor, yeah, uh, I wanted I to ask you about to, that. Yeah, I was yeah. assigned to find him. Um, but, you know, I've, you know, fast forward, uh, uh, came back, wasn't exactly invited, having worked for Cheney into the Obama White House and decided to go out on my own with a business. But I think the bottom line uh, to, to your question is veterans don't need a handout. Uh, they don't need people's sympathy. But what they're often missing, that big gaping hole that some really struggle to fill, uh, is a sense of purpose. Right. I mean, in combat, you wake yeah. up every day with that mission, with people who are just as dedicated and skilled to your left and right. Uh, and, and you're moving out for a cause bigger than yourself to accomplish something great for your nation. And you get back and that's a real it's a real gap. So so when I talk to veterans, I get them plugged in, uh, whether it is like minded businesses and your purpose is now growing, you know, growing that company and delivering that product or that service. Or I just spoke with an organization this morning, uh, Force Blue, uh, that takes, uh, you know, veterans out and gives them diving skills. They're rebuilding the Florida reef and repairing uh, the Florida reef and doing, you know, um, uh, you know, marine conservation. And they've got a new mission right? Uh, focused on our environment, but that mission focus is what matters and what so many are missing. Yeah. You know, that, that's true. They need to, I think everybody does. And you know, I worry about people that are leave the military. I, I worry about newly retired people because they're right. They lose that sense of mission. And without that daily 
uh, stimuli to, to get them going and get them motivated, not just as, you're right, not as charity, but as being a productive American. That's what our system's all about. So, all right, so you do the military. You then get the proper segue. You're successful in the business world, but um, what made you think, oh, you know what? What I should do is I should run for Congress. <laughs> yeah, lost my mind some days, I think. Yeah, well, there's that uh, you know, saying, the, you know, friends don't let friends run for Congress. So what, what, that's it, right. who, who talked were, you into this? Some of my closest friends, uh, uh, you know, tried to talk me out of it. We, you know, we started with in our business, which, by the way, ba- basically focused on the analytics behind going after bad guy money all over the world. So when you hear about sanctions going into place, uh, say on Putin's inner circle, uh, you know, those oligarchs don't exactly <clears throat> advertise where their assets are, right? So we had the analysts partnered with uh, folks at the CIA and Special Operations Command at Treasury uh, that I saw, you know, both from my White House time and then down on the ground that groups like ISIS, they may preach like they're pure jihadis, but they run themselves like the mafia. They're in stolen cars, human trafficking. You know, one of the biggest counterfeiters of cigarettes around the world is Hezbollah, uh, right? And uh, and you shut off the money, you go after the money, or you want to find the bad guy, you follow the money, uh, then, then you can be incredibly successful. And so that's why business focused on bottom line. We had grown that from three of us in an attic to about 400 employees. Uh, I was the CEO. Uh, we had taken on private equity, uh, and you know, at that time, had a had a contract with Fox News. Was still going in the National Guard. Life was good, uh, but someone we all know well, Ron DeSantis, then congressman, decided to run for governor. Uh, it, it it opened up that seat. I was looking for ways to to serve again, and I thought between my business background policy time in the White House and the Pentagon, downrange time uh, as a combat veteran that I'd be able to hit the ground running and be effective. Well, uh, and, and a mentor of mine just very quickly said, you know, one day you're going to be in your rocking chair looking back on your life uh, more than you're looking forward. And he said, you know, making more money, staying in a in a Four Seasons rather than a Hilton, that's, you know, you want to leave a life of significance uh, more than you want to lead a life of luxury. And, uh, and you know, that's, that convinced me to take the leap. Well, look, you, you have shown and demonstrated uh, in, in first person why uh, you have been successful and overcome odds and serving your country. And so can't thank you enough for that. If I could just add one more point, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me was the real lack of veterans right now in, in Congress. Uh, in the 1970s, the House and the Senate was 75% veterans, 75% really? served. I did not know that. Today, it's hovering around 18%. And a lot of wow. people say, oh, that's because we had the draft back then and today we don't. But actually, if you look at the numbers, 20 years into the war on terror, We've had about as many veterans cycle through those combat zones as we had in three years in World War II. Uh, and so uh, I think that is really missing. It's not that we, on both sides of the aisle, it's not that we agree on the issues necessarily. I disagree with our Democrat veteran friends right. uh, on all kinds of things, but it's that ethos, that mission focus, 
you know, when we're in the black helicopter in the middle of the night or the foxhole or the ship, nobody's asking if you're black, white or brown or or uh, Republican or Democrat, or at least they didn't used to be, I think, under under this administration. Now they are. But uh, that's a different issue. But it's that it's that mission focus. And if I think about, you know, I think the Democrats that are most reasonable, that are focused on, you know, if we're willing to die for that flag, we'll take a, a tough vote. Or, or a compromise or roll up our sleeves. And so that, you know, that, that really nudged me in that direction as well. Well, I, I, you're right. I do think there need to be not so many attorneys, but more people that have actually served this nation, uh, particularly uh, in, the, in the, uh, the United States military, and we'd be better off. Um, so I can't thank you enough for your, your service and your time. But I, you got to also survive. You've survived a lot of things. You got to survive the rapid questions that we're going to ask you here, because uh, I'm just telling you, I I don't care how many push-ups you've done, uh, you know, in your army training. Uh, this is you'll you're not prepared for these questions. All right, bring it, bring it, let's go. All right, ready? Yep. Favorite salad dressing? Vinaigrette. High school mascot? Blue Devils. Blue Devils. All right. Blue First Devils. Con- I have no idea. I have no idea why. It always felt really bizarre. <laughs> For- First concert you ever attended? Oh man, I attended uh, one uh, Pink Floyd. Wow! Now that that's yeah. notable, Pink Floyd for yeah, a first concert. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was pretty young, and uh, and then later on, I was a little bit older. You're going to make fun of me for this one, but it was uh, Tears for Fears. Uh, you were rolling. <laughs> Congressman <laughs> Michael, if I may, you you were rolling until the Tears for Fears came in. I but know, okay. I know. All right. Well, mine was Michael Jackson, so you know, uh, I win every that's, bet. That's, that's like you know, as long yeah. as you had the red jacket on and your sparkly glove. <laughs> no, right? no, 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 no. I was not dressed the part, but I was there in Mile <laughs> High Stadium in Denver. And anyway, uh, first childhood celebrity crush, Wonder Woman. Yeah, Wonder Linda Woman. Carter. For sure. Yeah. I remember meeting Linda Carter. You know, she hangs out in D.C. from time to time. And I met her a couple of times and uh, I thought, wow, there's Wonder Woman. That was kind of cool. I did, too. I saw her at a movie premiere and I think I I think I still had a little crush. Yeah. Uh, You're probably a little nervous, a little sweaty palms. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Unique, (laughs) unique talent that nobody knows about. Oh, gosh. Yeah, probably the fact that I have none. Um, <laughs> I, I never would enter a, a talent contest. Can't sing, play, can't play an instrument. Uh, you, you're, you're stumping me there. Uh, you but know, you know I, what? I'm trying to develop one. And uh, so, so one, I boxed in college. Uh, and uh, two, I am uh, trying to pick up kite surfing right now without killing myself. All right. Well, that that is a talent in development. But the most fascinating one I think I heard was uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin, your colleague there. He was world champion karate. I had no idea that he was a world champion karate person. Like I had no idea that he had done that. And you wouldn't look I, at him and say, hey, that that guy's a world champion karate guy. Look out. You had no yeah, idea. No offense to Lee. I wouldn't look at him and say that either. But man, well, I'm going to I'm going to steer clear if we disagree on a vote now. Yeah, try just making a move on it and see how he reacts. I think that I would hope be he good. Goes in, I hope he goes in Karate Chops Cuomo. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not literally for everybody listening, but I hope, I certainly hope he does in that race. Good yes, Lord. I totally. Yeah, no, he's got his hands full, but what a great opportunity. He'd be a wonderful governor. All right. He would. Did you ever have a pet? 
I did. Uh, I had a, I had a, a little dog. It was a rescue dog. Uh, he was literally dumped off at our door, so we called him Dumper. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and it also had a, a cat that was bigger than the dog. The thing was like 25 pounds, a Tomcat. So, yeah, we did nothing too exciting, but, uh, man, I love those little guys. Hey, Dumper is a good name for a dog. That's, that's kind of funny. That's kind of funny. All right, favorite menu item at Taco Bell? Oh, Chalupa, of course. Yeah, that's the right answer, yeah. Chalupa. Yeah. It's fun yeah. to say, and it's great to eat. Yeah, There's one right outside the Jacksonville airport. Man, you know, I add a good couple of thousand calories every time I get off the plane. It's terrible. Yeah, I, I just I, add I, more miles to the run the next day. Yeah, I, I've actually noticed. So, All right, <laughs> I, ideal time to go to bed. Oh man, before Congress, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty disciplined nine ten and getting up. And now, you know, the deal, Jason, um, a lot it's of people happening. want a lot of you and it's, it's, it's solid <laughs> the, midnight 1am. Yeah. There's no way you're going to bed at nine and being in Congress. No. Oh, no. no. All right. Uh, most embarrassing moment. Oh gosh. You know, I have to tell you, uh, there was, I, jumped uh you know i was an airborne unit obviously special forces and uh and got hung up and uh my pants split uh as i my uniform pants split as i was coming down um my wallet flew out uh money flying everywhere it was just a it was <laughs> just a mess and i've got dozens of green berets on the ground <laughs> laughing their rear end off and uh and i've never heard the end of it well, it could have been a lot more tragic than losing a bunch of $5 bills. Yeah, but that's, yeah that's right. Yeah, but in yeah, front well, of your buddies, uh, other Green Berets, well, I, I was totally get that. the commander of the unit, and I'm coming down with, you know, with my underwear hanging out and, uh, and, and my wallet all over the place. And, yeah, <laughs> um, that, was, that was ammo for a lifetime for those guys. All right, two more questions. Uh, do you believe in UFOs? I do now. Man. Tell me about uh, that. You know, yeah. Well, I got to tell you, there is there's just nothing out there that would have those kind of flight characteristics. It's one thing to have an eyewitness, you know, somebody who was out right. on a country road and saw something. It's another thing to have the sensors uh, and the telemetry that we have in the United States Navy and Air Force measuring these things, moving at Mach 17, coming to a complete stop, going underwater coming above the water and to have it, you know, with that kind of telemetry, video, sensors, uh, it's it, it either uh, it's aliens or we have an adversary out there that's, uh, that we really need to be worried about. Uh, either way, it's bad. Or yeah, it kind really of freaks me out. It does kind of freak yeah. me out because that one with the that's going and then goes underwater, like, what's up with that? Like, right. And uh, gone, right? And, again, and then gone. It's, it's yes. Like thing, what happened? It's one thing for, yeah, I don't know, some hippie in California that may have been smoking something to say they saw something, but it's another thing for it to be tracked uh, by a ship, by a plane yeah. uh, and it, for it to disappear off a of radar and then to come back again. Uh, yeah, I, so, I think there's a lot more to this story and I hope they, uh, I hope it keeps coming out. All right. Last big question. Favorite vegetable. None. <laughs> right now there's an answer i can appreciate none of the yeah. above i yeah. like it meat listen potatoes. uh congressman michael waltz uh from florida 
you quickly became one of the most influential members there in Congress. Cannot thank you enough for your personal service. I love the story about your mom and how she really, really made a difference and in your life and, you know, was in tough times, but, you know, it just worked and worked hard and made great That's things right. happen. And so for your service to the country and, and serving uh, in the United States Congress, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your service. Really do appreciate you joining us today on the Jason in the House podcast. Well, hey, thanks so much, Jason. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. But as I've said, you know, really thank the families, uh, you know, take an extra step. When you thank those veterans, thank those families, because either we don't come home or we come home forever changed. Uh, they're the ones that truly bear the brunt of our service and defending this nation. Uh, but appreciate you, brother. Amen to that. You know, we just celebrated Memorial Day and um, there's no better time before and, and not just Memorial Day and not just Fourth of July to to really reach out to those veterans. I think it's an important message. Again, Congressman Michael Waltz, thank you so much. Do appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Again, I can't thank uh, the Congressman enough. I wish him nothing but the best and Godspeed and thank him so much for his, uh, his service. But I wanna end with a little bit of inspiration. And you know what, this is more visual than maybe a podcast, but I really hope that you saw this last week. There were two young, young ladies, young kids really, that were having a, a lemonade stand. Now we've all been locked up, we've had COVID, we've done all this. And these two little girls were out there selling lemonade. And it looked like it looked like had the cameras rolling because a group of bikers, and I'm talking not not road bikes, I'm talking Harleys, you know, all dressed in the leather and the bandanas and the helmets. The Harleys come down this very um residential street and all of a sudden they stop and they get off their Harleys. They park them across the street and they come over to these two girls who had this nice little thing, a lemonade. And they quickly ran out of cups because every one of them came out. They pulled money out of their wallets and bought lemonade from these little girls. And it's just, I'm just telling you, it's the sweetest thing when you watch it and you see it and you think, you know what? I'm glad America's getting back to normal, and I nothing like uh, these Harley riders uh, doing that. I, I just, you know, on the back, I don't know what group they're from or what they want to be called, but it said Charity Mars Hill Riders. And so hats off to, to the men and women who got off their bikes and, and made, the, made the day for these little kids and their parents, and they had to go run in the house, get more cups. I love that. Love that about America. Love that about this time of year. We just celebrated Memorial Day. We got Fourth of July coming up. That's what America is all about. I want to thank you again for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. You can find more from the Fox News Podcast Network over at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Really would like it if you hit all those stars and subscribe. I think you'll like it because we will have another great guest for you next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.